Welcome and thank you for joining us on the Stay Healthy South Sound podcast, where we want to give you tips on staying healthy and even expose common myths about health and aging so you can enjoy a healthier and active life in the amazing South Sound. Brought to you by Dr. Jennifer Penrose, owner of Penrose and Associates Physical Therapy. Welcome to the Stay Healthy South Sound podcast. My name is Dr. Jennifer Penrose, and with me today is Dr. Liz Piper, a physical therapist that specializes in pelvic health physical therapy for both men and women. And so our today, our focus is on the importance of pelvic health and some common myths around that and simple tips you can implement with regards to pelvic health. And then lastly, we'll cover when to see a pelvic health therapist. So Welcome, Liz. It's great to have you here. Hi, nice to be here. So let's just jump in. Tell us your background, where you went to school, and how you decided to go into pelvic health. Okay, so I actually was a professional ballet dancer before I went to PT school. And uh, naturally, that's a good uh, progression forward, right? So I actually started shadowing a pelvic health PT her name is Lucy Kaduri. She actually works for Providence as well now. She's an amazing person. She also works at EIM, so she does a lot of content. So basically, I ended up shadowing her, trying to figure out if I wanted to go to PT school. And then here we are today because I, I fell in love with pelvic health. So I went to school at St. Martin's University for my undergraduate. And then I continued on to University of Puget Sound, where I got my PT education. So now I have my doctorate. And uh, yeah. That's about how I got here. Yeah, that's interesting to follow a PT that was already in kind of a niche area of physical therapy. Yeah. So tell the listeners a little bit more uh, what pelvic health is all about. Just kind of dive into that a little bit in case there's somebody on here that just is like, what is all included with pelvic health? Yeah, totally. So in general, pelvic health is treatment of multiple pelvic diagnoses. That can include things like urinary incontinence, fecal incontinence, or anal incontinence, depending on how you want to categorize it. Leaking stool, gas, anything like that with exercise, that would be a diagnosis we would see. Chronic pelvic pain, erectile dysfunction, sexual dysfunction, constipation, pelvic organ prolapse. But we kind of joke, I have a colleague that says that pelvic health is orthopedics in a cave. Which it's, it's true because oftentimes something like a pelvic health diagnosis isn't just going to be a pelvic floor function thing. It's a behavioral modification and any surrounding tissues that are going to affect your pelvic floor. So, but additionally, it's it's not just those diagnoses that can be a quality of life thing as well, right? So, and any kind of musculoskeletal function or dysfunction that you're having with those symptoms. So it's like, your urologist isn't helping, your GI isn't helping, your PCP isn't helping. So there's symptoms that we're addressing that it's not just, quote, your bladder or just your small intestine or, you know, whatever it is. So yeah, it's PT for those functions. <laughs> yeah. I think that's something that's just helpful to clarify. Cause I do think there's a lot of people who think, well, I already saw my GI doctor and I saw the urologist and I saw my OBGYN and I'm still, it's still not solved. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing is they'll give you a clean bill of health, but you're still having chronic constipation or you have incomplete emptying with bowel movements. And that oftentimes ends up being a muscle issue, a coordination issue, a strength issue, you know, normalizing behaviors to improve those symptoms. And we're not always having those conversations when you're at the GI doc or whatever, because oftentimes they don't have time or that's not their scope of practice. Right. right? So then that's where we step in. There was a patient that said that her pelvic floor therapist figured out why she was having so many urinary tract infections as she wasn't emptying the bladder all the way. And she's like, but I sit there until it's all done. Well, it was her positioning on the toilet and it just teaching her to lean forward, I think is what she said, helped get that bladder completely empty. And of course, that's our area of movement and how we can help with a certain function like that. I don't know, maybe urologists know that, but they don't have the time to sit there and educate on that piece. Right. And that their specialty isn't the muscles that surround the bladder. It's the bladder and your kidneys and your, your urethra. So, and sometimes they're not diving in and asking those questions, or if they do, they know who to send them to, which happens to be pelvic health. So yeah, common myth, do not stop your urine flow when you're peeing. 
I have to say this a hundred times. Do not do that. There were studies in the eighties that said, stop doing this because it increases risk for infection. So if anybody tells you to do Kegels while you're peeing, tell them that they are wrong. Yeah, no, that's a good one. I'm glad you brought that one up because we are going to talk about myths. So the first one you kind of we tackled that one. Let's go to another one. So leaking urine is a normal part of aging, especially after having babies. Want to tackle that one? Uh, yeah, this is a heavy one. So leaking urine is not normal. It is very common, but no matter your age, it's not normal. There is an aspect to aging that could put you at higher risk for urinary incontinence. For example, when we're perimenopausal, estrogen changes and the mobility in your vulvar tissues can change, they become a little bit more firm and less mobile and less plump. So that can affect your ability to basically keep yourself continent. So there's something there, but that doesn't mean that that can't be addressed with other muscular changes, right? Also, as we age, it's common for us to be underdosed with exercise and we become more sedentary. So as we become more sedentary, our muscles tend to not be as strong obviously, and that can cause a little bit of weakness, which can lead to urinary incontinence. Additionally, a lot of people, you know, end up having children, right? And you are at greater risk when you've had more pregnancies or vaginal deliveries for urinary incontinence, but all those things are treatable. So it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. I think there's just a lot of people that just think that's just part of the normal advancement of aging. I'm just going to have to wear Depends. Yep. I think that's perpetuated too by other women. They say, oh, you know, just remember after you have that third kid, you're not going to be able to jump on the trampoline anymore. And so that normalizing is perpetuated. And so people aren't necessarily bringing it up at appointments. You know, it's our job as providers to ask those questions about sexual activity, about bowel movements, urination. And if somebody's leaking all day, that's a concern. We want to work on that. And that's not, it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. No, that's good. Is there anyone that you've worked with that had it for quite a long time? They really didn't think you'd be able to make any difference. Like, can you speak of, you know, is something come to mind or maybe even a few cases come to your mind? Yeah. I have seen a lot of people with chronic leaking. Certainly. I would say it's more common to see people who have been leaking for longer than not and oftentimes people have tried a lot of other things. They've tried uh, meds for a bladder with no changes. They've tried changing certain dietary things or whatever with not much result. But oftentimes they're not getting a full muscular assessment. And somebody's not taking 40 minutes in a subjective to figure out when they're actually leaking. And so, I mean, I can think of quite a few people who they go, oh, I just leak throughout the day, but actually it's they're leaking on the way when they stand up from a certain chair, or they're only leaking when they click the garage door button and they're going inside their house. So oftentimes it's a pattern in the leaking that we can change. And yeah, I've treated people who have had leaking for 25 years and we're down to one small pad a day compared to five large ones. I mean, it can be a big difference. Well, in cost. Yeah. Yeah. And quality of life, I think, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. Because people limit their activity all the time. I had a recent patient who wanted to get back in the pool and her limiting factor was leaking, not just uh, urine, but stool. And she's now back in the pool. No problems. And she's in her 70s. So minimal limitations. And that's super important for people because quality of life is... That's what we're looking for, right? No limitation, full function. Yeah. How about just talking about what the pelvic floor undergoes with pregnancy and delivery? Because it seems like I will hear of just friends in the past, but also patients where they kind of think like, okay, it's going to be normal to just leak after that. Um, so let's kind of dive into some of the postpartum myths and urine and kind of what happens with pelvic floor and expectations for healing and that kind of thing. Yeah, I am very passionate about this population because I think oftentimes we underdose and we also we put pregnant and postpartum people into a category where we treat them like they're fragile and they're not. So that's really important. People who are pregnant are very capable. A lot of your outcomes postpartum can do with who you were before you got pregnant and how your pregnancy went. So that can be um, a determining factor. But it's 
common, let's say, to leak postpartum, but there's a lot of things that change with your pelvic floor when you're pregnant, right? So your uterus increases substantially in size, as it should when you're carrying, but the pressure on that pelvic floor can be greatly increased, right? As we progress through our pregnancy and it depends on the way that you're carrying your baby and where you are in your trimesters and all that kind of stuff. So not only are you getting more load to your pelvic floor and your pelvic girdle, but the tissues in your abdomen are stretching substantially. So all of your core muscles are getting stretched. And we know as PTs that when muscle is lengthened past a certain point, it's harder to contract, right? So it's a greater challenge to contract at length. So, and the uh, transversus abdominis co-contracts with the pelvic floor. So that quote, deep core muscle that people talk about. So that's going to help your pelvic floor, right? And so as we have changes with our abdomen, we're also going to have changes in our pelvic floor. And, you know, there's a difference postpartum between brain readiness and pelvic floor and load readiness. So some of us are really excited to get back to what we were doing prior to pregnancy or at a certain point in our pregnancy, which is fantastic. However, we need to meet our pelvic floor where it's at, right? And other parts of our body where it's at because we don't want to be perpetuating symptoms over time because we haven't healed correctly or done a pelvic floor endurance program correctly. Yeah. If the pregnancy goes well, the delivery goes well, nothing really out of the ordinary, is it normal to expect that pelvic floor healing would happen then like eight weeks? It's okay to like start more low. How does one know like, all right, when can I load? Is it more like, I feel some really, you know, like pressure in the pelvic floor. What does that really mean? I didn't notice that before I was pregnant. Yeah. So kind of speak to that a little bit. So it is normal to have those symptoms postpartum. It is normal. It is normal to feel more pelvic heaviness. We know that that perineum travels more anteriorly and lowering postpartum. However, I actually treat people pretty quickly postpartum. I want to see them at least like two weeks after there's a lot of OBs and other providers will say six weeks. So that is because normally you're cleared for intercourse. They're making sure that all your tissues are healing correctly in terms of if you had some kind of episiotomy, tearing, stitching, you know, C-section scar, whatever it is. But there's a lot of different healing things that you can do immediately postpartum. So you can be working on diaphragmatic breath because your diaphragm does not move the same way when you're at the end of your pregnancy. It does not have the ability to. So working on lengthening through there is really important. Learning how to contract your abdominal muscles correctly again, teaching people how to manage pressures correctly so they're not feeling the pelvic heaviness as much, right? Because a lot of people already have children or they still have to do things around the house. Like the fear mongering of, oh, don't lift anything but your baby. Don't walk up the stairs or you might prolapse or da 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 da. It's just not practical for people. They have to live their lives. What if you have a five-year-old and a three-year-old and a newborn? You're telling me your three-year-old isn't going to need you to pick, like you have to pick up your kiddo, right? So yeah, I see people fairly quickly postpartum for that. There are some protocols that we pay attention to. Like it's recommended to start running at least 12 weeks postpartum. And it's not that we're trying to keep people from doing what they want to do, but you want to build up to running. You want to do low impact to high impact endurance training. And typically we try to do that stuff where we're pushing you, but you're not symptomatic. So if every time you go running, you're leaking, your body's learning that it can leak when it runs. So we have to start with things like, you know, can you manage your pressure well when you're doing a step up or a heel slam or a squat or lifting overhead or you know, even as simple as transferring out of bed, but you have to start low and go slow, slowly over time. It's just like any other muscle group that has to rehab, right? Yeah. It's graded exposure, but for the pelvic floor. Absolutely. Yep. Cause it's a skeletal muscle. Yep. That's kind of, I think that's the hardest thing for women who are runners. They like, once they get the six week clear, they want to start running. It's like, no, no, you, you were just clear for like, that's just the first part. <laughs> Yeah, I get that. I mean, and it's a fantastic thing to want to be active, right? That's that brain readiness versus body readiness thing. But there's a protocol that we follow and we have guidelines for this. So there's a study, I think it came out in 2019, but I'll try to send it to you. But anyway, it's like you should be able to walk for 30 minutes without symptoms. You should be able to do a single leg squat. You should be able to do a single leg hop 10 times on each side. Now, I'm not talking a pistol squat, by the way, (laughs) like a single leg squat, not a deep, deep one. 
you know, being able to do like rapid movements, like a running man on a single leg and single leg hopping, like all that stuff should be integrated and asymptomatic before you start your running. And then you can start to do an interval program. I also want to say that I, if I have somebody who's really, really wanting to run at six weeks, I'm not going to exactly tell them no, but I'm going to tell them why. Because oftentimes if I can I don't want to say convince, but if I can give them the information so that they can make an educated choice, they'll realize that they're running long term is going to benefit if we get them performing like a readiness program. Like how can we go low impact to high impact endurance? And then you won't be leaking in five years with your running. Right. So there's it's there. You're going to have long term benefit from that. But I'm also not going to be like, you can't do that. Right. Right. Well, I kind of think that's the approach a lot of us as PTs have with all of our patients. There's something they want to do, but the tissue isn't ready and explaining, all right, you may get away with that. However, these are things that might come up if you feel these symptoms and long-term, this is what that could mean. And just giving them the information, like you said, so they can make an educated decision and you hope they make the right one, but maybe they'll, if they go do it anyway, at least they might have some parameters around it. Yes, absolutely. Yep. Creating a good program for somebody working with what they have is vital for sure. There's another myth we want to dive into the Kegels. That's all I need to do for pelvic health, right? Like that's kind of the common thought of just like, I'll just do my Kegels. It'll be fine. The drama. Well, I will. I say this to my patients often because they say, oh, well, I've been doing Kegels and I'm, you know, I say, well, how is that working for you? And we, you know, generally providers will just say, oh, just do your Kegels postpartum. You're good. And one, that's not nuanced at all, right? Because there's different types of Kegels. There's a quick flick Kegel. There's a max voluntary contraction Kegel. There's a long hold Kegel. So all of that stuff is really important, right? If that's what you need, but sometimes people need relaxation instead. So that's also important. And a Kegel, if a Kegel solved all of your pelvic health problems, I wouldn't have a job because it's really easy to just sit there and Kegel. Although caveat to that, some people actually can't Kegel. So I don't want to dismiss those people, especially if you haven't tried one before or haven't needed to use one before. So my general approach with Kegels is I do a full muscle assessment on people first. Then I figure out if what kind of strengthening they would need for what their goals are. And a Kegel program is used in isolation to teach coordination and function. So for example, if you are leaking with coughing and sneezing, sometimes it can be a coordination issue. So if you teach somebody how to do a pre-contraction or a Kegel right before and during a cough or sneeze, they might leak less. Now, there are other caveats to that. If you're somebody with a really tight pelvic floor, for example, it doesn't matter how hard you squeeze, you might still leak. So Kegels are not everything, but knowing how to do one in isolation might help you perform other things functionally. But eventually, if I'm doing any other pelvic bracing, it's like in integration with function, right? And knowing how to do a Kegel and just doing straight Kegels is not going to help you not leak with running, you know, because when you're running, your pelvic floor shouldn't be contracting when you're striking the ground. It should be preemptively contracting in anticipation for the strike. So that's coordination and it's also loading appropriately, which is not always Kegels. <laughs> yeah. Listening to you talk, I think people can wrap their head around. This is far more complex than just doing the Kegels. Yeah. It's a little bit more to it. And then in terms of the tightness, since you brought that up as kind of a, another potential cause of the leaking urine or urinary incontinence, is that something that really can only be released by a pelvic health therapist, like you're using your hands for that, or you do that partially, and then you teach them ways to manage that going forward, I guess, speak to that piece a little bit. Yeah, so pelvic health therapists are pretty good at assessing where your tension and tone is in your pelvic floor, because we've palpated a lot of pelvic floors. So once you kind of identify if you're somebody who is more tension driven, yes, there's treatment that pelvic health providers can do, we definitely do intravaginal, interrectal, and external manual therapy, like soft tissue mobs, absolutely. There are also home tools for that that are actually pelvic wands. There's a couple of companies that have pelvic wands. It's basically a trigger point release wand for your pelvic floor that you can use vaginally and rectally, which is pretty cool. 
and also doing things, there's certain stretches that tend more towards pelvic floor relaxation and using breathing techniques. So, and then identifying why you have tension. Like, are you a high perceived stress person? Like, are your shoulders going up to your earlobes? all the time. Yeah. You might be somebody whose pelvic floor is going up to their, you know, belly button all the time. <laughs> and like, are you experiencing any pain or, you know, are you super sedentary? Like what is adding to your attention issues? Cause once you figure out what the actual culprit is, then you can see why you have tension, right? Like is your pelvic floor the victim? Probably. And we got to figure out what the culprit is. And people who tend to be tension driven are the people who have like high urinary frequency pain or overactive bladder type symptoms with urinary stuff constipation incomplete emptying with constipation pelvic pain with intercourse resting pelvic pain those are the people who tend to be like high tone high tension people i'm generalizing but yeah kind of you, you segue kind of into our next myth there I must use the bathroom before I run any errands. And if I go more often, then I won't leak one out and about like that. People think like, well, I'll just take care of it by doing this. So if you can speak to that myth and what appropriate hold times and how often we should really be <laughs> voiding. What is normal? Yeah, what is normal? Yeah, so this is the dreaded, what I call the JIC or the just in case, the J-I-C-P. So I think this often stems from one, worrying about leaking, two, having access to a clean bathroom or a bathroom in general, and your parents when you're younger telling you, we got to leave the house, go to the bathroom. Mom, I don't have to pee. Go pee, right? I think that it comes from a lot of different things in general. So this is what's interesting about the just-in-case pee. So emptying your bladder every two to four hours is normal. And that also depends on like what meds you have on board, how hydrated you are, you know, how well you're sleeping. There's a couple things that contribute to that, right? If you're drinking any bladder irritants or diuretics, but in general, every two to four hours, you should be peeing during the day. Nighttime is zero to one. So if you're peeing three times at night, you should also see a public health therapist. That's normal. And then in terms of, you know, urine color, because I don't just look at, oh, every two to four hours, you're good. Like I'm looking at your urine color and looking at how much you're peeing. Right. So is it true that if it's really, really dark yellow, that means you're not hydrating? Like I've always used that. I will say medications can change that. However, yeah, you should probably drink more water if your pee is real dark. Like where we should be going for a light, light yellow. Right. And clear. So yeah, I look at stuff like that. But the problem with the just-in-case pee is basically your bladder has a couple different what I call awareness points. So as your bladder fills slowly over time, you have sort of this like first awareness data point where your bladder goes, oh, yep, there's some pee in there, but you don't have to pee. The next data point is the, well, my bladder's almost full. This is what I call the make a plan awareness point. There's actually a really good pelvic health PT on Instagram. I'll send you her, her information. She explains this beautifully. And then you have the, oh God, emergency pee. Like I'm unbuttoning my pants pee. You know that pee where you're like, it's been six hours. Why did I do that? You should be emptying your bladder sometime around your make a plan line. Right. And what happens when you do your just-in-case pee is you're going, oh, okay, well, here's my bladder, and you go to the bathroom and you pee, and you're telling your brain, well, that's when we need to empty. We're full now, right? So then when you empty, you're sending the signal from your bladder to your brain is saying, hey, we're full, and then your brain goes, oh, okay, I'm going to send a descending signal, and I'm going to start squeezing your bladder, which helps you empty, right? That's how we urinate with ease. But if you continually do the just in case, like, oh, I'm going to go running, so I'm going to just in case, or, oh, I'm going to go run errands, I'm going to just in case, or whatever, you're slowly training your brain that your bladder is full. So then your understanding of capacity changes. So the whole just in case thing is actually a behavioral modification. And that's why people end up doing the like urge incontinence. Like every time they come home from the grocery store, they like panic, you know, like I can't get my key in the hole fast enough, or there's a lot of environmental triggers with that. But then you'll start getting high urinary frequency and some people will have urge incontinence. So those kind of all correlate together to the just in case, et cetera. That's so interesting how the brain starts to really mess with this. Well, I mean, a perfect example of that is, I don't know, I experience this when I'm really stressed, my urinary frequency goes up, right? So you do that like, whew, really got to pee thing. And you're like, oh, it's only been an hour and a half since I peed. And you really didn't have to pee that bad, right? Same thing happens with bowel, fight or flight, rest or digest. Are you pushing it through or are you holding it back, right? And the bladder can react 
that way. So yeah, it's all about the brain. It always comes back to the brain. Yeah, no, that's helpful. The next myth that we're going to tackle is you have to have surgery for pelvic organ prolapse or POP kind of maybe dive into what pelvic organ prolapse is and some symptoms for our listeners. And then you can kind of dive into that myth. Treating pelvic organ prolapse is one of my favorite things to treat. Shockingly. I know I love it so much. So this is why 41 to 50% of the female population has some measurable pelvic organ prolapse. So half of the women out there walking around have some kind of prolapse. Only three to 6% have symptoms. So prolapse has become, it's sort of a subjective disease, if you will. So your prolapse is really only as severe as your symptoms present to you. Now, I don't want to dismiss people who have significant prolapse. It is definitely changing their quality of life. Like that's a real thing. Absolutely. But one of the recent courses I took actually mentioned, it's kind of like prolapse is the, uh, the bulging disc of the pelvis, right? It's like, you can have plenty of bulging discs and have no symptoms. So anyway, it's super common to have prolapse and yes, there are risk factors for prolapse, including you know, chronic cough, smoking, obesity, multiple pregnancies, um, vaginal deliveries, et cetera, but it can happen to anybody. So there's lots of different categories of pelvic organ prolapse. There is a bladder prolapse, which is basically where your bladder sends itself towards your urethra. There's a rectal prolapse. So just like it kind of falls, right? Like if you can think of it like gravity. Lengthening, right? It's just kind of, it's like your pelvic floor sighing a little bit. Your organs are coming just a little bit downward. Then you can also have a prolapse of your rectum towards your anus, and then you can have a cervical prolapse, a uterine prolapse, and then more commonly things called a cystocele. So that's where your bladder is pushing towards the anterior wall of your vagina. And then you can also have a rectocele where your rectum pushes on the posterior wall of your vagina. And some people report things like pelvic floor heaviness or pressure. Oftentimes it's with greater activity. There's a caveat to that, but oftentimes it's with activity standing for long periods of time. Uh, Constipation can be part of that or incomplete bladder emptying, things of that nature, or just complaint of a bulge. So some people will feel a bulge when they're standing or when they're bearing down to have a bowel movement or they're in a deep squat. People can complain about it with intercourse as well, but most of the time, the, whatever the prolapse is, it just kind of just moves itself out of the way. So if you're having pain with intercourse, that might be something else, not necessarily your prolapse. Prolapse is very interesting to treat. And I think oftentimes there's a lot of fear around it. And I think that we have to get people a lot more functional and understanding what their symptoms are and then treating the function, right? Like, does somebody need a pessary? Do they need, you know, a fitting with a urogynecologist, for example, or what's happening with their stool consistency? Are they constipated or any of those things, right? I think it's, we're all very fearful of it, but we have to realize that so many people have it and it's really subjective. I've had people who have like a graded stage one, two prolapse, which is a less severe prolapse. Symptoms are like terrible. It affects everything they do. And I've had people who have like a grade four prolapse, don't even know it where I'm assessing them on the table and I can see the prolapse significantly and it doesn't affect them at all. Yeah. Yeah quite a bit of variety. Well, so knowing that it's just very variable, like how many actually really need to have surgery? Do you see a lot where people get the surgery and then that didn't help and then they end up in your treatment? So I think essentially what you need to do, if you're somebody who's a candidate for surgery, you're the person who has tried everything. You have gone to pelvic health PT, you have worked on pressure management, you have changed your diet, you know, you've gotten rid of your chronic cough because you have asthma, you've changed everything and your symptoms still not good, like you're still unhappy, then that's a time when you would go maybe see if you are a surgical candidate, right? But before any of that, you should have somebody on board. Like you should be seeing a urogynecologist. You should have been fitted for a pessary if it's appropriate for you. And if it is like, how old are you? Do you need to use estrogen cream as a prep for that, right? And that's something that your provider should be helping you with. Once you've tried all of that and you're still not happy with your symptoms, that's when you consider doing surgery. So you have had to refer some people to that and yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think my biggest job there is to make sure you have good quality of life and change all the behaviors that can contribute to your prolapse, right? Like 
have you had chronic constipation for 30 years? You are somebody who needs to get that addressed because they're oftentimes people will go in for prolapse surgery and they'll be good for a couple of years and then their symptoms are back. I mean, that's the worst thing, right? To go, oh, I'm good. And then a couple of years later, well, I'm having the same symptoms again. And sometimes that's because we didn't change the behaviors or we didn't change them enough. So, and there are obviously some other factors for people that can be more complex. Like if you're somebody who has a hypermobility disease or disorder, right? Like EDS, it might be more appropriate for you to have surgical intervention, but yeah. Interesting. And then the next myth is pelvic pain is something I will just have to live with. So those who are struggling with it for years and years, and they, they've just seen several specialists already and they just are like, well, this is just what it's going to be. Yeah. Pelvic pain is very complex. (laughs) I will be the first one to say that. I think You know, a lot of people don't know that much about their pelvic floor muscles. That's one thing to identify with pelvic pain. It also, you have to identify what pelvic pain you're having, right? So that's when a PT comes in and does an assessment to see if you are more likely to have like SI joint pain, right? Is it SI joint or is it pelvic girdle pain or is it pelvic floor pain? Something like that, right? And so, and the pelvic floor can also refer to a lot of different places. So you can have referral pain to lower abdomen, hips, groin, low back, etc. So you kind of have to dive in to see what their pain actually is and when it's happening, right? Are like, are you somebody who's had coccyx pain for 15 years because you had a fall? And what position is your coccyx in? And does manual therapy help with the proprioception there? Right? I think that people normalize pain, and not to say. Pain is a normal part of life. We do not live pain-free lives. However, it should not be high frequency, high duration, high intensity, right? And going along with pelvic pain, like pain with intercourse is a big part of that, right? So that I actually try to encourage people to have that discussion too, like orthopedic providers. So somebody's having pelvic pain, you figure out mm, maybe a referral to a pelvic health provider to figure out if it's your pelvic floor muscles. And then also, are you having pain with intercourse? Are you having pain with bowel movements. Like that kind of thing will indicate pelvic health as a treatment option, right? But no, you don't have to live with it. I think that pain is very interesting and we all know that quote pain is in your brain, but that's not a good way to explain it, right? Pain is a descending signal to your brain and there's some kind of signaling happening there that we have to change. And I think learning pain experiences with pelvic pain, you have to start changing that feedback loop, right? So somebody has pain with intercourse repeatedly, why are you having pain with intercourse? What's going on with that? Are you having a conversation with the partner or partners that you have? And are you anticipating the pain, right? So are you somebody who goes, yep, every time I have intervaginal penetrative intercourse, I'm always going to have pain. Okay, why? Let's talk about it, right? And I go over generally like vulvar health and use of correct lubricants, not brand name lubricants that can be really bad for you. Side note, but that's not always it, right? Those are like my, I want to check the boxes. Like, are you having vaginal dryness and are you using KY? Don't use KY. Do you have one that you would recommend? Yeah. So I tried and true is slippery stuff. We love slippery stuff. Good clean love has some great lubricant options. They have some aloe based ones. Desert harvest has some good lubricant. I really like mod M A U D E. They have great gender neutral items, which we love, right? Not not everything has to be purple and sparkly. Yeah. And because you're looking for pH balance, so you want your pH of your lubricant to be close to that of your vagina, which is different depending on what time of your life you're in, but in general, somewhere around four, right? And you want it to have the least amount of chemicals as possible. There are a couple of chemicals that tend to be more harmful. I can give you a list if you want. It shouldn't sparkle, shouldn't smell good, shouldn't cool, shouldn't warm, shouldn't do any of that, right? So KY and Astroglide are off the table. If you like silicone-based, Uber Lube is a fantastic silicone-based lubricant, but you can't use it with silicone toys and it's only safe with certain condoms. So silicone doesn't like silicone, basically. It breaks it down. So yeah, but once you check all those boxes, then you kind of figure out what's actually contributing to it. Like this is very common and I have a colleague who would totally crack up if she heard me say this, but if we can reproduce your pain with palpation, we know where your pain's coming from, right? And there is a muscle, there's a hip muscle called your obturator internus that's in your deep pelvic floor. And it's pretty hard to palpate externally. When you palpate it externally, you're kind of grouping in a couple of muscles because of where the tendon comes out. But that thing always lights up on people with pelvic pain. 
I don't know why it just, I don't know if it like takes over and because we have other gluteal weakness or whatever, but that dang operator internist, especially I find it in really active people, you know, like crossfitters, runners, like that, that group of people, which we love active people, but no, you don't have to live with pelvic pain. You can treat it even if it's chronic. Yeah. And you have, you have people who had it for years. Oh yeah. I'm uh, currently treating a patient who has had uh, coccyx pain for 18 years and has seeked a lot of treatment. And I finally convinced them that we need to do some interrectal palpation for her coccyx and such. And she's so gung-ho. She's like, whatever, I'll try anything. Right. And she jokingly, a couple of visits ago, she comes in, she goes, I hate to tell you, Liz, but my pain was less this week. She's like, man, butt stuff. We have to do that now. You know, (laughs) just, I'm like, well, yeah, it's helping you. So yeah, it's, I treat chronic pain. Absolutely. Yeah. I don't treat pelvic floor, but in terms of PT in general, like I'll hear someone's story about their, you know, whether it was their back or their knee or whatever, shoulder. It's like, this has been going on for how long again? And so I can say the same in the other stuff. So it makes sense. It would be no different. Yeah. It's a skeletal muscle, right. And things surrounding it. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, I encourage people if they're having pain, try to get it treated sooner rather than later. Cause oftentimes chronicity makes things last longer in terms of treatment. It's more complicated. Yeah. Any other myths that you wanted to tackle or did we? The other one I wanted to go over was vulvar hygiene. (laughs) What's normal? So one, vulvas have a smell and vaginas have a smell. You should know what yours is so that if it smells different, you can get treatment for it. So like I talk to people about this all the time. Cotton underwear, no fancy laundry detergent, soap should not go anywhere near your vagina. So, and a lot of people get really self-conscious about that stuff. Like I have people constantly apologizing for smell and pubic hair and it's like, oh, it's normal. It's a vulva, right? So, and same goes for male patients. We're kind of catering towards female patients, I think in this conversation, but there's a lot of shame tactics around that, right? Like the, what are the brands? It's like feminine wash. You should not be washing your labia minora with feminine wash at all. Like that is not. So anyway, I'll get off my soapbox with that. But vulvas have a smell. Okay. If it changes, do something about it. Go talk to your doctor. But there's that. The other thing I wanted to talk about is menopause. So I think as I've progressed through, you know, my experience as a PT, one thing I've noticed is that menopause symptoms are oftentimes dismissed. And I think that although pelvic health is a small portion of treating that, I really encourage people to get their menopause symptoms treated, right? If you are waking up three times a night, if you're to pee, if you're having hot flashes, if your sleep quality changes, if your sex drive decreases, if you have vulvar dryness and vaginal dryness, if you have urinary incontinence, like talk to somebody about it because you do not have to live with it. There are so many therapies that we have to help treat those symptoms. And there are people who actually specialize in this, right? Like functional medicine people and all that. So, and there are plenty of over-the-counter options for symptoms, right? So somebody is adverse to using an estrogen suppository or cream or doing HRT or it's not appropriate because their medical history or whatever, there are vaginal moisturizers, you know, hyaluronic acid is a big one right now. Good Clean Love has their own vaginal moisturizer that you can use over the counter. So there are options for people. So I think that, you know, we just dismiss it and go, well, you're going through menopause, so you're going to pee, you're not going to sleep, and you're not going to want to have sex anymore. It's like, okay, like maybe some people want to do those things still, right? And why? Get those things addressed. And pelvic health can help with some of those things as well. So functionally, we can work with you. Oh, good points to bring up. All right. So now we will segue to tips for good pelvic health. And first on the list is tackling constipation. Yeah. I, it's so funny. One of my colleagues, we were talking about this the other day and we're like, why do we love talking about pooping so much? I think it's just because it affects so many different people and figuring out what's normal. is really important. And also figuring out like the stigma, like why you're ashamed of pooping or why people can't poop in public restrooms and all that stuff. It's quite interesting. But yeah, so constipation isn't just straining. So constipation has a lot of different definitions. So if you are pooping less than three times a week, that's considered constipation. If you are straining, 
that is considered constipation. If you have incomplete emptying with your bowel movements, for example, if you go to have a bowel movement and you a little bit comes out and then you kind of feel like there's more in there, but you can't really get it out, that's constipation. So ideally you should be having at least one bowel movement a day. I know that there are some caveats where every other day might be normal for somebody, but in general, like a good sign of health is at least one bowel movement a day. And obviously medications can affect that, right? Stress can affect that. Being pregnant and postpartum, abdominal surgeries, there's lots of different things, but that's what we're aiming for, right? So I get on a soapbox about diet with people a lot. And I know that can be hard because of access to food and all that, but there's a lot of good research to support fiber and diet. You're supposed to have 35 grams of fiber to prevent colon cancer. And I'm like, I guarantee you, if you're not like getting produce at least multiple times during the day, if you're just, well, I have a salad at dinner and an apple at lunch, yeah, that's not going to cut it. Yeah. So fiber is interesting. There is actually a, if anyone's interested, there's another podcast called the Huberman Lab. Have you ever listened to their, he has a great great podcast, chock full of things anyway. But there's some research that's come out supporting a greater increase in fiber. So like somewhere near 50 to 60 grams a day. Here's the thing about fiber though. Don't go out and be like, I'm going to eat all the fiber now because Liz told, no, like you got to slowly do it over time. You have to get your body used to fiber consumption and you should be getting soluble and insoluble. So I had a colleague, or I still have a colleague. She's fantastic. And she explained fiber really well. She said, You know the stuff where you add water to it and it kind of changes? That's soluble fiber. If you were to put broccoli in a bowl of water, that's insoluble. Nothing changes. And fun fact, fiber content does not change if the vegetables are cooked. So if you're not a raw veggie person, that's something you can do. Blanching spinach is always fun because I'm like, okay, this is three cups of veggies, three servings right here. And it just shriveled down to, yeah. Yeah. I'm a big, I talk to patients a lot about that, but diet is super huge in constipation. Toileting position. If you learn any front, anything from listening to this podcast, please get yourself a toilet stool. Please get yourself a toilet stool, especially for those of you who opted for a higher toilet, like more geriatric populations will do that sometimes because it's easier to get on and off the toilet. When you are having a bowel movement and when you're peeing, actually, your knees should be higher than your hips. That's why people have been pooping in a squat position for millennia because it aligns your rectum and it relaxes your pelvic floor muscles. So reduce straining, better emptying. Yep. That can just be like, you know, the stool that you have in your bathroom for your kids when they're little to like reach the sink. You just slide that on over. Absolutely. I, you know, we have two squatty potties (laughs) because I have the bamboo one. They also have a travel one, but I mean, reams of paper or two by fours, or I have a patient who uses the, um, the wipes boxes, you know, like for like the baby wipes underneath her feet, yoga blocks, old telephone books, textbooks you never use anymore. You know, you can really use anything. You just want it to be supportive and you want to be able to relax fully with your feet. So no tippy toes. Actually, if you put somebody on a biofeedback machine, which basically gives you the electrical integrity of the muscle, like if you put it on somebody's pelvic floor muscles and then you have them go from flat to toes up, you can see the change in the biofeedback. And if you have kiddos at home, try to have like a potty book or a game or something. I have a lot of moms who are like, my children won't leave me alone. You know, my one and a half year old, I'm like, okay, well, when you have to poop, you bring them in the bathroom and you know, this is the potty book you read or, you know, whatever thing. Cause I can, when you got to go, you got to go and you should. So other simple tips, avoid prolonged sitting. I think we in the medical community have called sitting the new smoking. Yeah. And I mean, I have my issues with capitalism here, <laughs> right? In terms of the 40 hour work week and how often people are sitting, but people sit too much. There's research to support different postures and this and that, you know, sometimes slumping can be better for people in terms of energy convers- conservation. There's stand, sit, do all that stuff. In general, you just got to move, move. You know, like get up and take movement breaks. And that's not just walking around, like do 20 squats, do some burpees, you know, do some variation of that, do heel raises, do running in place, do something because like we got to move more. I mean, hypokinetic disease is killing us, right? Like CHF, type two diabetes, 
obesity, everything, right? And obesity, there are some caveats genetically. There's been a couple of things lately that have really brought some light to obesity. And especially, did you read the thing about the obesity in children, the new clinical practice guideline? They're recommending surgery for kids like of a certain age and things like that. Yeah, because they're seeing all these negative effects and they're also seeing how much genetics play a role in obesity. So that's really fascinating. So the part of obesity that you can change is move more, eat better, improve your sleep, et cetera. So, but we can't necessarily change our genetic components. And yeah, but anyway, sitting is the worst, man. I mean, sit when you need rest, but you know, the recommendation for reducing your risk of Alzheimer's is 150 minutes a week of moderate to vigorous exercise. Like this is not going on a walk. This is like exercise. Walking is an activity. Walking is not enough for exercise. (laughs) I will say that a hundred times. Anyway, so, but also there's new recommendations too that you should be getting 300 minutes a week of moderate to vigorous. So these numbers are continuing to go up in terms of, anyway, what we recommend for activity. Yeah, and if you have coccyx pain, stop sitting on your tailbone. (laughs) There are specific coccyx cushions that there's literally a hole cut out for your coccyx. You can use it in your car. Like there's all kinds of things you can do for that. So, and then I don't know other tips that you want to share. We can go into hydration or other ones that you want to share. Yeah. I have so many tips. One is the use the stool for pooping. Absolutely. Yeah. Hydration is interesting too. There are so many different recommendations on hydration. It all depends on your metabolism. It depends on what meds you're taking. How much coffee are you drinking? Do you have alcohol on board? Like what's happening with that? You know, in general, I look at people's urinary habits to figure out what they need and people get crazy with water too. I'm like, why are you trying to drink that much water? Like that's an excessive amount. You know, I drink a hundred ounces of water a day about, and that works out perfectly for me. I pee every three to four hours. My urine's the right color, da, 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 right? But You know, the other thing about hydration, though, is that people will do this thing where they're like, yep, I have my coffee in the morning and then they don't start drinking water until noon. I'm like, okay, take a sip of your coffee, then take a sip of your water. Take a sip of your coffee, like dilute your diuretics and irritants, because that's another thing with urinary incontinence and frequency. If you are consuming just bladder irritants and diuretics, your symptoms will be worse. One of my colleagues, she told me a story that she had a patient who was drinking like all sparkling water, like eight cans of sparkling water a day because it's quote, just water, right? No, it's not. It's sparkling water. It's carbonated. And carbonation is one of the top bladder irritants. And I don't know the mechanism behind that. Like, I don't really understand that. But if you are leaking and you are drinking only seltzer water, please reduce your seltzer water. Like have one can a day. And when I think about water consumption, I think like, how would an IV drip into you? You know, like when they give you a saline bag, what would that be? They wouldn't like squeeze all the saline into you at once because your body can't utilize that. So slow sips over time. Just attach it to another habit that you do every time you get up from your desk or every time you start a new Zoom call or every time you, I don't know, if you're a teacher's and peeing, that's the worst. It's so hard. I know it's like they never take breaks and teachers don't have breaks. That's a, we call it the nurse's bladder jokingly. I'm sorry, nurses. Yeah. Hydration can be super important for sure. We can talk about the the stretching too. Stretching for your pelvic floor can be awesome, especially for those of us who are higher tone or people who have constipation and they need some relaxation techniques. My favorites are Cobra, prone press up, happy baby, any variation of happy baby that you can get yourself into a child's pose with wide knees. I like like a wide knee child's pose deep squat, your best friend for pelvic floor stretching. It's the most relaxed position you can really get into. And I also like doing like a piriformis stretch, like a figure four of some kind. And I like doing it where I put one foot up on the wall and then the other one crosses your knee. So you don't have to use your arms to pull your leg in. It's too much work. I mean, when I'm stretching, I am not working hard. (laughs) I don't want to. More like relaxation. Like, yeah. Yeah. And when you do stretches for your pelvic floor, you can work on your diaphragmatic breathing. So you can lengthen your pelvic floor at the same time, right? A really good time to figure out how to bear down too. If you don't know how to bear down, you got to learn because that's how you poop, right? So when you're doing your deep breaths, you can figure out, oh, what's lengthening and what's baseline and what's contraction while you do some of that stuff. So yeah, I stretching is not necessary for everybody, but it can be really helpful depending on what your symptoms are. Certainly. And then deep, you kind of touched on it, but like deep 
diaphragmatic breathing, is it something they should kind of do daily? Kind of what's your, what do you think the right dosage is there for most of it? I mean, I would say that our American culture in general just runs too fast of a pace, right? Like we never really slow down and like deep breathing is like, do what? You want me to stop and do what? I know. I've been trying to integrate cyclic sighing into my day. And the research says you're supposed to do five minutes of it per day for decreased perceived stress. I have yet to complete it. And I'm a little embarrassed to say that, but there's a reason why cultures have been doing breathing techniques for millennia. I mean, really like every culture has some kind of breathing integrated, right? Whether it's your Apple watch or whether it's yoga or meditation or a combination of those things, it can really help to one, reduce perceived stress Two, it can help normalize some things, you know, like do some deep belly breathing when you're constipated, do some deep belly breathing when you're having pelvic pain. Like there are ways to modulate your pain that isn't just medications, right? That isn't just stretching and you're going to reduce, you know, effects of your parasympathetic nervous system. Yeah. I did a podcast on diaphragmatic breathing and how that helps with pain and walk people through it. Like I spent, it was probably like a 20 minute podcast, but that's basically what the focus was. So those of you listening, if you need to go back to a prior episode, but yeah, it definitely, we don't take that time to get into that parasympathetic nervous system to help with the pain management aspect. So when I have some acute patients that really can't tolerate much of anything in the beginning. It's like, we're going to spend the whole session on this. And they're amazed like, oh, that actually does help. Absolutely. I mean, I don't know about listeners, but there are times where I'm like, I just got to breathe real quick. I just got to decrease whatever's happening in my brain right now. And it can be super helpful. Absolutely. And you know, like, are you a belly breather? Are you a chest breather? Are you a stress breather? Like what's your, what's your strategy? It can be very helpful. It's like, if you're not somebody who can, you know, start an exercise program for 30 minutes a day, eight days or eight days a week, (laughs) seven days a week, start a breathing program. Just see how you do with it. Right. Uh, I think we'll segue into the last portion here of just like maybe summarize a little bit. When should you see a pelvic health therapist? And I actually want to spend a moment because we haven't touched on it a lot. Men's pelvic health. What kinds of things come up in their world that would then a referral to you or when they should see you? Yeah. So I am very passionate about women's health because I think that women tend to be underserved in general. However, I think that men are even more underserved in terms of pelvic health diagnoses. So I see people who will have like incomplete bladder emptying. That can happen to people with male genitalia as well, right? Constipation. Uh, erectile dysfunction can be one of those overactive bladder symptoms, pain with urination, pain with sexual function, chronic pain, all of those things. So there is a muscular component to erectile dysfunction. It's not as simple as taking Viagra then. No, it's not. And I mean, obviously your heart health and your vascular health does have something to do with the ability to maintain an erection, right? There's no mystery there, which is why drugs can help with that. But you also have to be strong. So like there's a particular muscle in the pelvic floor called your bulbospongiosis, and that helps you maintain an erection. And orgasm is rapid contractions of your pelvic floor. There are other aspects to orgasm, but that's important, right? Being able to rapidly contract and that's caused by nerve stimulation. But if we get weak over time or we're not using those muscles for whatever reason, we can have dysfunction there, right? So there's also people who have had prostate issues, right? Whether it's prostatitis or they've had cancer and they've had their prostate removed or part of their prostate removed, they're going to maybe have urinary incontinence. And there are ways to improve that with pelvic health PT. So you don't necessarily have to, you know, live with urinary incontinence. If you've had prostate cancer and like your sexual life completely changed after that, do they have another thing that they could see pelvic health PT for? Because they do they just need to accept that that's their new reality or not necessarily? I'm going to say it depends because some people, their sexual function never returns no matter what we try. But some people it can. It can return and it can return in some capacity. So you never know unless you try, right? So yeah, it does depend, certainly. Well, those are, yeah, I'm glad we touched on that a little bit. Anything else you want to summarize of when people should see pelvic health therapists? We talked about, you know, leaking urine, pelvic pain, 
I don't know if there's more. Yeah, so I'll I'll just go down my list. Leaking, I always like to specify that leaking gas is also leaking. So if you can't control your gas, you are also leaking. Don't be alarmed, but that's something that might tell something about your function, right? So leaking gas, urine, stool, pelvic pain, which we touched on, right? And pelvic pain with intercourse, you should definitely seek some help. If you are pregnant, trying to get pregnant, or you are postpartum, come into pelvic health PT because <laughs> there's a lot of things that people are going to tell you you can't do. And I'm probably going to tell you that you can. So I'm okay to ruffle feathers, <laughs> especially if you're like a fitness athlete or somebody who is really focused on fitness or you're having issues with function. Right. And like, if you have pelvic girdle pain in pregnancy, there's a lot of stuff we can do for you. Some providers will say, well, you're pregnant. And afterwards, once you're not pregnant, you'll feel better. And that oftentimes is the case, but sometimes it's not. So that would be a good time to come in. If you're somebody who has really high or low urinary frequency or bowel movement frequency, that would be a time to come in. If you're somebody who has overactive bladder or been diagnosed with overactive bladder, first line defense is pelvic floor PD. So it's not just medications. And it's a lot easier to do pelvic health PT than it is to take, you know, some kind of med for the rest of your life. So I would definitely seek advice with that and also prolapse, which we touched on. If you've been diagnosed with prolapse, come in, certainly. And honestly, those patients, depending on how, quote, severe their symptoms are or how complex they are, they feel better pretty quickly. Like I would say four to six visits. So um, depending on the complexity, some people we're going to be working longer because they have other diagnoses on board, but you can have very much so improved symptoms quickly. What about children, like the bedwetting that goes on and on, like past, like let's say when you potty train a kid, typically you know, age three and four, you're like, you're done with all that. Right. And then you have these ones that go on and on and on into like 13 years old and it's still happening from time to time. Yeah, I will say pediatrics is not my specialty. I will say that. What I know about bedwetting is oftentimes it has a lot to do with sleep quality, rest, fluid consumption, diet, stuff like that. So it's, I mean, it's kind of similar in adults, right? So in adults, I oftentimes will see really poor sleep quality, like somebody who would need a CPAP, for example, and they're waking up multiple times a minute because they're not breathing <laughs> and they'll quote, wet the bed or have nocturia is what we call it. So like if I was suggesting anything to a parent, which I do not treat pediatrics, so don't judge me. The first thing I would do is like look at sleep quality because depending on the age, like people are not getting enough sleep, but I'd have to look in again at like what the sleep numbers are for certain ages. But like I think teenagers are supposed to get like 12 hours of sleep and that's like quality sleep. So, you know, if your eight year old is having nocturia, but they're only getting seven hours of sleep, you might want to change that, right? Like what's going on with that? And then are they drinking water at all during the day or are they chugging it all at night? Cause they were so busy having fun with their friends and then all of a sudden they're really thirsty. So, I mean, that's what I can speak to. Right. Are there some therapists in the community that do work with that? Yes, there are. I just didn't know if it was even PT indicated. PT and OT, definitely. So, and a lot of the, the time when we're dealing with pediatrics, we're dealing with parents as well, right? So habits in terms of parenting and what that relationship is like. So if anybody can take anything away, I know that your symptoms are probably quote, not normal, but there are a lot of people who are dealing with them. And I think from a provider's perspective, we have to do a better job at asking these questions. So if anybody is a physical therapist listening to this podcast, please ask the questions. It's our job to ask about sexual function, which is an activity of daily living if you want it to be, right? Like ask them if they're constipated because like what if you're seeing somebody and their back pain is, you know, insidious onset and then all of a sudden you understand it's their pelvic floor when they can't be helped. 100% of people will experience low back pain in their life and 90% of them, up to 90% have pelvic floor dysfunction. Thus, we should be asking about it, yeah. right? Get comfortable asking those questions because then you can actually refer them out to somebody. And if you're somebody who has pelvic health issues, address it, ask about it, get a referral, insist on a referral, right? And I, like there are countries where pelvic health is part of your plan postpartum. That is a part of your care, like just like your six week visit would be. And there's so much stuff that I go over with patients before they have a baby too. like side note on that. How do you labor? What positions, you know, how open glottis versus closed glottis breathing? Like what does postpartum actually look like in terms of pressure management and wound healing and all that stuff? So 
beware what the internet do not Google. I have a mentor in one of the classes that I'm taking and she says it perfectly. She says, I'm your Dr. Google now. Stop Googling <laughs> because you will be scared. Everything results in I'm dying, right? Well, as typical, we have our rapid fire questions to end with. What is your favorite restaurant in the South Sound? Okay, so currently I would say my favorite one is a toss up between Chicory and Roe. Those are my two. Chicory has these amazing bar stools that are so cute and they drew me in with they're like green velvet bar stools. But then the server was so knowledgeable. Both places are excellent. Awesome. What is on your bucket list to do in the South Sound that you have not done yet? So I can't remember the name of this, but it's that like train pedaling thing you can go do. Do you know what I'm talking about? I can't remember what it's called, but you sit on this little train car and you pedal it through the woods. I have to go do that. I can't believe it. That and I got to go to some hot springs. And then what is your favorite place or thing to do here in the South Sound outside that you recommend everyone get out and do or visit? Gee in the snow or just be in the snow snowshoe i mean like just get it's so pretty it's like that's why that we have rain so we can have snow right thanks so much for coming on the podcast and sharing all your knowledge um where can people find out more about you where are you at so i work at providence outpatient rehab and you can reach out to me on instagram if you want so i think you can include that in the show notes right yeah i can yeah it's elizabeth dot piper dot dpt but we will list that in the show notes so but yeah yeah feel free to ask questions anytime and i can always send you little tidbits right i'm always open to have a conversation with people great all right thanks so much and until next time everybody thank you for listening to the stay healthy south sound podcast brought to you by penrose and associates physical therapy if you want some free tips to implement right away on various problems like knee pain, back pain, running injuries, and many more issues, then jump on over to PenrosePT.com and download the free report that fits your needs. You will receive helpful tips right away and have the choice to email in for further questions and set up a free phone consultation. You can reach us at 360-456-1444 and info at PenrosePT.com. You can stay connected with us at StayHealthySouthSound.com and Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next time on the Stay Healthy South Sound podcast.